Let's continue worship with a reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 51. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, and another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit, sorry, the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I told you, tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Uh, just a few things before we get started. Um, I, I have a, a meeting on Tuesdays where some people help me brainstorm about, like, you know, sermons and what we're doing here as a church. And, and it's just fascinating to compare that meeting uh, this past week with a meeting about a month ago before Mother's Day came around. Uh, Mother's Day, they were all like, dude, we got to go all out. We got to, like, someone volunteered to buy roses for every woman in this church. Someone just volunteered, all right? Like, we want to make them feel special. And it was awesome. It was an awesome Mother's Day. If you were here, it was great. I love that. It was awesome. And this past week, no one said anything (laughs) about about Father's Day. Nothing. Just hilarious to me. Listen, they're like, if we don't go all out for the moms, they will burn this place to the ground. But like, (laughs) the, the dads, the dads will be fine, right? So, so dads, we love you. Thanks for being low maintenance. Um, you're, you're doing great. High five. You know what? Take a nap on me today. All right. Tell your wife I said it was okay. And, and that concludes the celebration of Father's Day for the service. Now we're going to, now we're going to go on. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so second, um, yesterday, some people took a grill and some speakers and a bouncy house slidey thingy, um, to the next door, uh, to the village side. What's it called? Village something. And Dude, we had such a blast. Show us some pictures, Elijah. Absolute rock stars that went to this church, spent Saturday sweating over a grill, manning a bouncy house, serving people food. And y'all, we were just extending in the most simple, practical ways the kindness of God in the name of Jesus. And dude, can I just say, if you, I'm proud of you in the best way. Uh, I know, right? The puppy was there. 
It was so good. Um, so Jim and Matt Satterfield. Oh, wow. This, you guys are going all out. That's the rafter. My form was a little off on that. My form was a little off. Wow, that's good. Um, thank you if you were helping. We, we don't take ourselves too seriously, as you can tell. Um, if you helped yesterday, thank you. You're a rock star. You could have been doing other things. Um, and you were serving people in the name of Jesus, and I'm proud of you. So, uh, all right, we've been in a conversation on the Holy Spirit, and we <clears throat> have baptisms at the end, so we're not going to take super long, but I just want to kind of hit pause on this conversation and address some fundamental assumptions uh, that we have as modern people about the universe that we live in. See, oftentimes in religious circles and in sermons, uh, Christians jump into a topic and we just want to say, well, the Bible says this and says that. And we often neglect to define terms and honestly deal with the underlying assumptions that we bring to the Bible. And when we don't deal with our underlying assumptions about the universe and the world we live in, conversations about the Bible can lose relevance really quickly. So we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What does he do? Um, but in our age, we have to take a step back and realize that many people, Christian or not, do not have a worldview that thinks the spiritual can engage with the physical. Okay? So Christian or not, I don't care if you call yourself a Christian, many of us have a worldview which says, is there a spiritual realm? Maybe there is. I don't know if there's not. Maybe, but if, if there is, I don't think they intersect because I don't believe in ghost stories and Casper and witchcraft and stuff like that. In fact, most people have a worldview that completely removes the idea of spiritual beings or spiritual reality from being a possibility. So when I say spiritual, when I say spirit, um, do we think of the same things that the biblical authors thought of when they said spirit and spiritual. The word spirit can mean uh, all sorts of things to all sorts of people. In fact, um, it does have all sorts of meanings. Uh, John Mumford says the thing about words is you never know where they've been. This is true. So who knows what you think of when someone says the word Holy Spirit? Um, the question is, what did the biblical authors have in mind? And what was their view of spirituality? And what we'll see is just like language itself, it's not always simple and clear. You're like, amen, I don't understand anything you're saying. Right, language is like that. To throw more mud in the water of this conversation, we live in a thoroughly materialistic society. You know what that means? Yeah. So we live in the modern mind, there is little to no room for spiritual reality. We have deep, deep skepticism that any spiritual reality exists and would prefer to understand the world we live in in purely physical, scientific terms. You understand what I'm trying to say right now? To, uh, uh, so, the spiritual world, the unseen realm, belongs in fantasies and movies and outdated, outmoded, maybe retrogressive thinking about the world. That's how moderns think about it. Despite the sharp rise uh, in popularity of the New Age movement in America. Just read a headline. Headline said, Analyst says new age beliefs more popular as fewer Americans follow traditional religions. Okay? Not to mention the vast amount of young adult movies that center around the supernatural of some sort. Harry Potter, Marvel movies, Star Wars. So despite the clear cultural hunger we see to acknowledge some idea of spirituality, 
Modern people tend to think um, that it was kind of scientific ignorance that made people think that the gods were pulling strings behind every natural phenomenon. Today we know that's not true because we understand the mechanics of weather and tectonic plates and sickness, and it's all observable science. We live, y'all, in a thoroughly disenchanted world with little or no room for mystery or wonder, right? So we don't watch a butterfly go by us in awe. No, we catch it, and we kill it, and we pin it to the observation table, and we dissect it so we understand how the wings flap, and we remove awe and beauty in effort to understand a thing. But in so doing, we've killed it, <laughs> right? And maybe your ability to stand in awe of things as well. So this past week at Alpha, uh, which is, dude, Alpha is so legit. If you're not a Christian, man, I'm so glad you're here. Come hang out with us on Wednesday nights. Like, we just get after it. No holds barred. No, no question is off limits. We have small groups. We just wrestle through uh, what the Bible talks about Christianity. And in my small group last week, I was kind of like working out some ideas with them and, and thought, you know, I think like we have these inner thoughts in us, right? Kind of arguing for like the fact that maybe there's a spiritual dimension to our beings. And we have these inner thoughts and unseen ideas. And maybe that is like the unseen area of our life. And maybe that's our spirit. Maybe that's our soul. And someone said, no, I don't think so. Because modern science has nodes and scanners where you can see thoughts happening in the brain. Therefore, that is physical, not spiritual. So we were just wrestling with when, what is spiritual? What is physical? So today, I just want to submit to you what the New Testament means when it says spirit. And the framework and the worldview that the New Testament has of spirituality. You guys cool? You want to roll? All right, let's do it. One of the first distinctions you see in the Bible, in the New Testament primarily, is there is a capital S spirit and a lowercase s spirit. If you see a capital S spirit in the New Testament, it is, it is referring to one unique, specific identity, one spirit. It is God's spirit. If it has capital S in the New Testament, it's referring to God's spirit. God's spirit is called the Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness, the spirit of Jesus. He's called the spirit of truth. In Matthew 10, he's called the spirit of the Father. In Romans, the spirit of life. In Hebrews, the spirit of grace. In 1 Peter, the spirit of glory. He's called the comforter, the counselor, the advocate, okay, among other titles that he's given. Um, and so this capital S spirit is always referring to God's spirit. And God's spirit, according to the Bible, can be given. The New Testament says he is a gift. He can be received. He can be, likewise, refused. He can be quenched. A little behind the curve there, boys. That's all right. You'll catch up. Uh, the Spirit in the New Testament fills people. In Luke 1.41, Elizabeth was said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, he falls on people. Acts 10.44, he speaks. In Acts 10, the Spirit said to Peter, God's spirits communicates. In Acts 13, in Barnabas and Paul, they are sent out by the Holy Spirit. You can be in the Spirit, according to the New Testament. In the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 18 says, pray in the Spirit. You can be baptized with this Spirit. Saturated. John the Baptist said, I baptize with water. Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit. Romans tells us you can do things by the Spirit, or be led by the Spirit, or walk according to the Spirit, right? First uh, John 4.13 says this, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has 
given us his spirit. Here's a good one. Ephesians 5.18. So biblical survey. You guys track on me? The New Testament. Ephesians 5.18 says this. Hey, listen, listen. Don't get drunk. Don't get saturated with wine, right? Instead, be filled, saturated with his spirit. Capital S, the spirit of God, which is an interesting parallel, isn't it? You can be filled with the spirit and when you are, it does something physically in you like alcohol affects your body. Amen? Oh, I didn't think anyone was going to say amen because you're all Christians and you've never been drunk before and you don't know what alcohol does to you. Listen, I've been told it does stuff to you, all right? Like a couple beers, I think they call it buzzed. I don't, I don't know. I don't. So, I mean, obviously I don't know, right? I mean, I'm a faster, right? Uh, no, 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 no. No, alcohol does something to you, doesn't it, bro? Yeah, it affects you. And if you drink too much of it, people notice. Something's wrong with that brother, right? He has, he's a little too much, all right? Yeah, it does something to you. What an interesting parallel. I'm so glad. I'm, I, I hope you're in here right now. I hope people are not Christians. Maybe someone who struggles with alcohol. Okay, let's think about it. Think of the way that affects you. Changes how you see things. You're slower. <laughs> you know? You're, it, it affects you. Okay? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, apparently, according to the New Testament, can affect your body. It has impact. That's a fascinating thought. In the same way that you can be saturated with alcohol, he says, you know what? That stuff's for little kids. Push that aside. Grow up and be saturated with the Holy Spirit. And notice what this does to you. And it has physical ramifications. But already, we're hitting a worldview here. You guys tracking with me? We just slammed into a worldview that says the spirit can interact with us. It can do things to us. And many of us would say off the gate, that can't happen. That's the stuff of movies and fairy tales. We think spiritual realm is out there somewhere, if it even exists, but it certainly can't affect me. But what we just read in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit of God can come in you in such a way that it physically does something to your body. You know what we call that in church language? When, when the Holy Spirit does things and let's say someone's blind and now they can see, when he physically, we call that a miracle. So here we go. We're hitting something right now, aren't we? I don't have a category for that, Pastor. I don't think those things happen. In fact, I'm pretty sure science has debunked most of that stuff. Well, exactly. That's what I'm talking about, right? There seems to be a whole world that can happen when the capital S spirit begins to influence your life. When you yield to the capital S spirit in any way, in like small yeses, you know what I mean? Like pathetic yeses. Just like, okay, yes, maybe I'll... And, the, and when he comes in, he does stuff in you. Man, it's the Bible, all right? There's an underlying assumption here, isn't there? That God's kingdom, that his spirit is not only present, but active here and now. And he can bust through into your life and actually really do things, right? But the, that's the assumption that many of us struggle with. Is there a God? I don't know. Is he really out there? And if he is... Can he really do anything? You tell me that's not a real question you guys got right now? Is there a God out there? And if there is, can he, really, can he actually break through into my life and do the stuff he says in the Bible, like break chains of sin off me and remove fear and anxiety and doubt and make me into someone that looks like Jesus? Really? I love that, sister. Jesus said this about the Spirit. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. So interesting right here. Jesus is connecting spirit with what? Wind. Wind. Yeah. So you can't see wind, can you? No, you cannot see wind. You can see the consequences of the wind. You can see what the wind is moving. You can see what the wind... It's the wind is this unseen motivation, isn't it? You can't see it, but it moves things. You can hear it, can't you? There's sensation. You can feel it, but you can't see it. So according to the New Testament, and to add on to that, in the New Testament, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. Pneuma. From where we get the word pneumatic. And any car mechanic or carpenter knows you don't have to see the air to know it can do crazy awesome things, like undo that bolt or drive a nail into a two-by-four, right? Pneumatic, power, right? So according to the New Testament, God has a spirit, is a spirit, and that spirit can motivate and influence the physical world in real ways, just like wind is unseen and can influence the physical world in a real way. So that's what we've been wrestling with. So we've been asking, what do we think that looks like? Do we really think that can happen? Or as Jay said week one, we have categories for being possessed by evil, don't we? Thank you, the movie Poltergeist, for those lovely categories that we all now have of what we think it looks like to be possessed by evil. And then he asked this, okay, well, do you think you can be, we, we have that, like, you know, um, World War II, right? We, we think of uh, the Nazi regime as these men being possessed by evil, and rightly so, right? I mean, people have done absolutely despicable things, and, and some things that, that boggle the mind. Rationally, you can't explain the evil that has, took place in World War II. And so we have ideas of what it looks like to be possessed by evil, but do you have a category of what it looks like to be possessed by good? We think, oh, I know what that looks like to be possessed by evil. Your head spins around, you spit out green stuff. Okay, what do you think it looks like to be possessed by good? Do you think that can happen? You can be full of evil, we know that, but do you think you can be full of good? Full of his spirit of truth? Full of his spirit of love? Right? But then you'll find in the Bible, spirit with a lowercase as well. And a whole new range of meaning pops up. In 1 Corinthians 16, it says, They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. 1 Corinthians 7.34 says how to be holy in body and spirit. Galatians 6.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Uh, when Paul's in Athens, it says he was provoked in spirit. Apollos in Acts 13 is said to be fervent in spirit. So apparently, according to the Bible, <laughs> you have a spirit. <laughs> um, or, wait, I'm not sure actually. Maybe you're a body that has a spirit, or maybe you're a spirit that has a body. I, I don't know. The Bible's not clear. But what we get at here is that you have something inside of you that's animating your body. All right? The biblical authors seem to think humans were made up of two main ingredients. And you know where they get this? They get it from the book of Genesis, where Jesus, or Jesus God, you know, infinity, whatever, uh, creates the universe. And what does God Make man of two things, sort of, clay and, correct, earth and heaven, clay and wind. These are the two components that make up man. Apparently, man is a composite being. He is a physical creature and a spiritual creature. 
So they get this from Genesis. Humanity is this kind of half spiritual, half physical, made of earth and spirit, which in some ways helps us begin to understand why humanity has such potential to be so low and debased and short-sighted and yet can be so hopeful and wise and lifted up. The Bible would say humanity is a complex creature that is, can be as grotesque as the dirt and mud and as lifted up as the heavens. Do you see the perspective the Bible gives us and begins to explain why humanity can be so full of hope at one hope and in one second so full of despair and evil and wickedness in the other? So theologians argue over this composition of humanity. They say, are we essentially bodies with spirits or are we essentially spirits and now we have a body? Am I a body with a spirit or a spirit with a body? But what, and where does one end and where does one begin, right? And if you're not your body, where are you? Are you in your body somewhere? Are you your brain? If you took your brain out and freeze it and put it in another body, would you be in? Okay, so now we're getting into like AI and movies and stuff like that. All right, so let's get, get going. So, so, but we should just pause. There's tons of movies about that, right? Consciousness. What's that one movie with Brad Pitt and the consciousness and uploaded into the computer? No one? You guys, oh, you're Christians. That's right, you don't watch movies. Okay, so uh, we should pause and just say uh, right here because we just got lost there, didn't we? Yeah, well, you know why? Because the Bible's not a textbook. The Bible is not really interested in things like that. First Corinthians is going to say, you know, how are the dead raised? Someone's going to ask that. And how does he respond? He says, well, that's a dumb question. First Corinthians 15. And then he goes on for two paragraphs to talk about it, what Kim read, right? And at the end, it says, flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God, which has led some people to say, well, these two things, physical and spiritual, must be totally divided, right? So if the flesh and blood can inherit it, I guess your spirit is disembodied and goes up into heaven. But the only problem with that is that Jesus, when he's risen from the dead, he is embodied. He's not a ghost. He has a body. Remember, he eats fish. And so what are you afterward? So there's all sorts of questions you're going to get in right there. Okay, but so no matter what you think about that, the New Testament is clear that the physical and spiritual, these realms are not closed systems. Tracking? They're not closed systems. They are intertwined. They overlap, right? And are interacting in very real ways. This is an assumption of the Bible. Now, up to now, we've said this. God is spirit, capital S, and you have a spirit, or maybe a body, either one of those things, but his spirit can interact with us. It can impact us, our body and our spirit, in unseen ways and in seen ways, all right? Um, so the basic assumption, God is spirit, you have a spirit, these two things can interact. But there is still a wider range of meaning when the Bible says the word spirit. There's more. You guys ready for this? And this one, we kind of accept today. Like, we get this language. In this, this word, in this case, spirit means... <clears throat> kind of a unique identity or essence or disposition of a thing or person. Genesis 1 is talking, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, 1 is talking about restoring those caught in sin. And it says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Oh, yeah, okay. So it can mean a way in which you do something. You can have a spirit of gentleness about you. It's describing the method. It's describing a mode of operation. It's kind of like describing a, a countenance about you when you do something. You can have an angry spirit. You can do something with an impatient spirit, right? Romans tells us you've been redeemed from a spirit of slavery. What's that mean? Is he talking about like a ghost or some sort of demon of slavery? Well, he says, but instead we've been given a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba. Uh, today, we use this phrase, a kindred spirit. You guys know what I'm talking about? So we mean, oh, I just connected with them. We had the same outlook and the same values. We had similar unseen realities to our life. 
and we connected. Kindred spirit. Second Timothy says, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. He's not saying he gave you a ghost of power and love or a ghost of fear. He's saying an essence, a mode of operation. You're no longer operating in fear and slavery. You're operating in power and love and self-control, right? It's an essence of flavor. And most societies have this term, you know, like Chinese societies called feng shui, when you walk into a room and there's like, ah, there's like a flavor of the room, right? So the Bible would go on to say things like this, Ephesians 2.2. You were dead through sins and trespasses in which, you which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, slow down now. What just happened here? Is he talking about like just, you know, kind of like, well, it's the flavor and mode of operation, you know, and you guys, is that what he's talking about here? Are they talking about just the way the world works? The, the, is, that a, is that what it is? Or is this something else? See, and this is where moderns get real uncomfortable because it's clearly talking about something else. Not, he's talking about a spirit, not God's spirit, not ours, not just the essence of a thing, but a prince. Did you notice that? You just looking at it? A prince who has power and is working in the world. In Jesus' ministry, he seems to be confronting spiritual powers. Have you read the Gospels? You know what he calls them? Unclean spirits. And these unclean spirits were exerting dominance over humans in physical ways. Have you read the Bible? It's bizarre, right? This is where moderns like take a step back and we start kicking really hard, right? Because here in Matthew 9, Jesus cast out a spirit who was causing a man to be mute. Whew, okay, now the worldview is taking a leap here. What this is suggesting is that there are, I have a spirit, God's spirit, and there are other spirits, and they can exert dominance over me? Okay, we're getting real kind of voodoo, witchcrafty here, buddy. I'm just telling you what the worldview of the Bible, all right? <laughs> and this is where we start to protest, and we say things like this. Are you telling me that every time someone is sick or has a mental illness, it's a demon? No, not at all. And the Bible is not saying that, because there are plenty of instances where Jesus heals someone and does not say, get out of here, demon. No, just like rebukes the fever or, the, you know, there's all sorts of instances. The, the woman with the issue of blood, the paralytic lowered through the roof, uh, the man who he heals with his spit. Have you seen that one? You read that? It's so weird. Spits in the mud, rubs on the dude's face. All right. So anyway, there's all sorts of instances. They're like, the Bible is weird. Yeah, I'm telling you that. Okay. There's all sorts of instances where Jesus heals people and doesn't cast out a demon. So no, the Bible does not teach that every time someone has a sickness or an illness, that it's some dark spirit influencing. That's not what the Bible says. It, it can be, and it may be, but it's not always. There are spiritual forces of darkness that can influence. And see, Christians, a lot of Christians, they just come off the rails here, and they struggle with a worldview that has nuance. They struggle with a worldview that's not black and white. They just think, well, every evil thing's always a demon. Or, and it's, no, dude, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that every time you lose your job or get a fight with your spouse or get a flat tire, it's the devil nipping at your ears. No, no, heels. No, it's more robust than that, y'all. The Bible is more, it does not reduce it to such simplistic thinking. However, it does teach there's a spiritual realm. And it can and does influence us in real ways. And... Good news that there is one who has final authority over every spiritual power, and his name's Jesus. Now, what's super fascinating is when we see these unclean spirits in the New Testament, uh, have you ever, if you've never read the Gospels, just like check it out, all right? Because what happens is Jesus is just walking around, and you know what happens when these unclean spirits see Jesus? They're freaked out of their mind. 
like they start flipping out. They're like, oh no, here he comes, get out of here. Like, don't kill me, you know? It's the, dude, this is, they're terrified of him. Y'all, dude, the thing of our nightmares, like the thing that has plagued humanity's dreams for all of history is itself terrified of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Like, this is bizarre, man. We're talking about spiritual powers. Everyone's really uncomfortable. And yet, all these spiritual powers that freak us out, power, I can talk, powers that freak us out are themselves terrified when the Son of God begins to walk around. So despite the fact that Christianity is classified as a monotheistic religion, you guys know what that means? Sorry, it's very, very academic today. Monotheistic, one God, uh, theo, right, mono. So, so Christianity is classified as a monotheistic religion. Uh, the Bible does talk about other gods, it does. The Bible talks about other spiritual powers. It talks about the little case God of this world, blinding the minds of unbelievers in 2 Corinthians. Jesus talked about money like a God that you can serve. And Jesus seemed to think, you actually, you have to choose if you're going to serve money or serve God. He attributes the possibility of bowing before something like we would bow before God. To other things. And of course, Christians have picked up on this, and we've realized that things like sex, things like drugs and addiction, things like anger, things like fame and power can exert authority over us in remarkably irrational and unhealthy ways. And the claim of the Bible is that Jesus and Jesus alone has the kind of authority over those things that we struggle under. Yes, we can make our way through thinking with others, and yes, other people can help us work through our issues and we can talk them out, but at some point, oftentimes, there is one thing missing, and it's the power and presence of Jesus in our lives. Now, I don't know if you can ever relate to being so angry, and you have no clue why, I don't know if you can ever relate to having patterns of behavior or addiction to certain substances that you try as hard as you can to get out from under, and you can't. And what the Bible is going to say so very often, first of all, we're blind to those things, because often it's things like greed, and no one thinks they're guilty of greed, you know, in our society. Often it's things like power. No one thinks, you know, it's things like money, things like that. We don't, we don't think we're guilty of that, but there is a, there is a dimension in which a reality in which we can become subjects to these ideas. You understand what I mean by subjects? In other words, that's the king, and you are serving it. And the Bible acknowledges this, that there's a type of spiritual devotion with which we pursue wealth. Does anyone else feel this? There's a kind of spiritual devotion and commitment with which we pursue pleasure and sex and, and we pursue it in ways that boggles the rational mind. It doesn't make sense, right? There's a spiritual dynamic, and they, exi they exert dominance over people. So I, I think I said this wouldn't be long, which is already a lost cause, but here, let, me, let me wrap it up here, okay? You can adopt a materialistic, physical worldview world of the cosmos, um, and you can say that the, uh, on, only the physical is real. You can do that. Um, it's the culturally accepted way to account for the universe. Um, in our times, you can stand in line with that. You can. Interestingly enough, if you adopt that, you actually stand out of line with much of the world, even today, in rural societies. Rural Africa, rural China, rural India, all still acknowledge a very deeply spiritual worldview of the cosmos. You can be 
out of line. And also, if you're in line with only the physical's real, you're also out of line with most of human history. Who, throughout most of human history, we have acknowledged spiritual realities and dynamics up until the influence of post-enlightenment European thinking, right? But my question for us all is this. Which perspective, the biblical perspective or the modern materialistic perspective, can give the most accurate account of life as you know it? Which perspective do you think gives the most compelling account of the universe? Think of this for a second before we end and baptize some people, right? Think of this. Think of the mysterious expanse of galaxies and stars. Think of all the natural world, oceans, jungles, ice caps, flowers, snowflakes. Think of the incredible balance of our solar system and the intricacies of human anatomy. The eyeball alone has led people to faith, right? Think of all the surprises of life and love and romance and desire and emotions. Reflect on the complexities of human history of wars and genocides and the horrors of violences that men have contrived mixed with the amazing potential throughout history of people that have done remarkable things for, human, for humans. But which, side note, most of the great humanitarian advances in history, Christians at the helm. Hospital reform, education reform. All right, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., brother, was motivated by the gospel. Most of the people who have made massive humanitarian efforts in human history were Christians, right? Just a side note, right? When you consider all of the scope and the wonder and the mystery of life, does a completely materialistic worldview make compelling sense of it? Think of a piece of art. So this is the last thing, I promise. No one believes you when I said that, say that anymore. Let me just give you one more thought. Think of an extremely compelling piece of art or a, a breathtaking piece of music that just grips your heart, right? Music or art, right? Like stops you in your tracks. Like for me, it's like Moonlight Sonata. Like I don't care how many times I've heard that. As soon as I hear that song, I'm just like, something grips me. It's beautiful. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's like Rascal Flatts version of, you know, whatever. Um, life is a highway. That's what it is, right? There's soldier boy. I don't care. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is, all right? Science can tell you every detail about the physics of the sound waves. It can dissect the frequencies and the harmonies and the mathematical structures of minors and majors. It can break down, if you're looking at a piece of art, it can break down the pigments and the paint colors down to the molecular level and the artistic influences and the styles of, of generations. That have, but it cannot tell you why it captivates your heart. It can't tell you why every time the song comes on, your heart jumps in your throat and tears come to your eyes. It can't account for that. It can't, it can't make sense of that. It's almost irrational, right? It can tell you the chemical makeup of your tears, but it can't tell you why you're moved to tears in the presence of beauty and wonder and majesty. The Bible is going to maintain life is not merely chemicals. It's not going to deny them. No, it's, not, it's just going to say it's not as simple as that. There is a spiritual reality to life. You're not simply a lucky clump of matter. God's spirit can and does engage with us here and now. And the choice that you have before you is, do you want that? Do you want his spirit? All the, think all the names that, we gave, that the Bible gives him. The spirit of glory, the spirit of life, 
the spirit of grace, the spirit of truth, the comforter, the advocate, the counselor? Do you want that in your life? Because apparently the choice is yours. You can reject it. You can quench it. You can say no to it. And the God of the universe, the God who created everything, who could crush you like an ant, when you say no to him, guess what he says to you? Okay, have it your way. If you don't want my spirit indwelling you, if you don't want my joy and my peace around you and motivating you, he's not going to force it on you. He's a gentleman. If you say no to him, he'll say okay. But if we don't take the time to pause and think about these fundamental assumptions, we may completely miss the conversation. The whole conversation loses relevance because we don't think it's even possible that there's a spiritual realm or that he can in any way influence us. And the question I just have for you today is, do you want that? Is that something that you, if you want to take, listen, right here, here we go. If you, right now, want to take an easy, busy, tiny step towards God, you can do it right now. All you have to do is say, God, forgive me for rejecting you and ignoring you and ask his spirit to come in. Invite him to come in and make himself known in your heart and in your life. So we're just going to pray real quick, and then we're going to dunk people. You guys cool? Yeah. All right, let's pray. I just want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Maybe for the first time today, just the idea that there is a spiritual reality and that it can influence and impact. It's just a new idea. And maybe right now you're realizing that you've been neglecting this massive component of your life. Like if you're half spirit, half flesh, however it works out, there's this massive part of you that could be totally malnourished and neglected. And no wonder you're exhausted. No wonder you're angry and frustrated. You're like a malnourished little, like you ever seen one of those pictures of like those babies in Africa, they're malnourished, their hair's discolored, their pot belly. It's like physically we can look so good and internally we're just like one of them little malnourished babies. We've not fed our spirits. Our spirits are starving. And right now, if you, if you can just relate to that picture and say, God, I feel like I'm in a desert. Like my life's imploding around me, nothing's working out. And right now you just wanna invite God into that place. The beautiful thing about the gospel, guys, is you don't have to pretend everything's great. Like God will meet you right in the midst of your desert. So we're just, let's just pray, Jesus, over my friends right now, maybe, maybe we, were too, we, were, we don't want to raise our hand, we don't want to step out, but we want to say to you, God, I feel like I'm dying on the inside. You can say that to God. Just quietly in your heart, man. You can say, Father, Spirit of God, Come inside me in a way that makes an impact. So right now, man, you can just invite him. I just want to give you just a few seconds just to be honest with God. I'm going to shut up for a second, give you 10 seconds, that if you should be so bold, to, to just a little bit of space to be honest with God about what's going on in your heart and life. Sometimes prayer is kind of hard, right? So if you want to take a step towards God, I'm just going to give you a, a, something you could say to him. God, forgive me. So forgive me for rejecting you. Forgive me for ignoring you. And Holy Spirit, would you make yourself known in my life? Holy Spirit, would you come? And show me that you really love me. And make what Jesus did on the cross real to me in my life. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.